Before I start this episode, I want to give you a heads up that I'm going to be offering a new course in May and June of this year. And this course is a little different from ones I've done before in that I'm going to cover some of the basics of Norse mythology and religion. I want to go back to the roots, the sources that we know about the Norse gods, because we hear a lot about them in popular culture and in discussion and literature and music and everywhere. But it's rare that we actually sit down together and look at the primary texts and the primary sources for the information that we have, much of which is limited and possibly filtered through the Christian lens. Much of it has been written down in the Middle Ages after the pagan era. But I believe if you're someone who cares about history, about religion, and specifically about paganism, that it's of huge benefit to have direct access as much as you can in translation to the most valuable and straightforward texts and historical sources available. It has long been my desire to compile these pieces of information and offer a container to explore them in. So now is the time that I'm going to start doing that. I want to cover, in the next two months, three of the primary gods in pre-Christian Norse religion. I'll be launching the course just a few days after this podcast episode airs. At the moment, I haven't yet determined which three gods I'll be teaching about in this season of the course. But if you want to find out, as soon as I announce this course and its contents in more detail, please join the mailing list, which I will link in the show notes, and you'll hear right away when the course drops and is open for registration. Just a heads up, folks who are on my mailing list often receive a discount to offerings that I make that's not available anywhere else. So if you're interested in the course, stay tuned, hop on the mailing list. I'm very excited for this one. It's going to have a interactive element. If you like, there's a limited number of places available for live classes where we'll be discussing the texts over Zoom together. But it's also possible to take the course in a self-paced way so you can listen to the lectures and read the texts on your own time in the comfort of your headphones and your home or, if you like, in the bathtub. That's all I have to say about that for now. Let's get started with the episode. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. This episode is an interview I had with Ole Müllevern on the subject of bear folklore in Scandinavia. Ole has an MA in the history of religion with a thesis on the folklore of bears in Sweden and Norway. He's 37 years old and lives in Jämtland, northern Sweden, with his partner and two kids. His areas of research are Nordic pre-Christian society and religion, Scandinavian folklore, and also Sami and Finnish religion and folklore. He's a practicing animist and a self-proclaimed bear nerd. In this episode, we talk about the definition of animism and how it brings us 
into more ethical relationship with animals, like the bear. We talk about the strange connection between human fertility and bears, and especially women in childbirth, covering topics like folk tales of human and bear romantic pairings, as well as the powerful symbols of hibernation and transformation that connect the bear to springtime and April in particular, in Scandinavia and beyond. I hope you enjoy the episode. I very much enjoyed recording it. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you you so much for being here. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you. Your research has been focused on a body of folklore and mythology you call bear culture. Can you tell me about what that means and why it might be important for people who are interested in folklore to think about? Bear culture is a sort of working hypothesis that I used for my MA thesis, and it reflects a way of relating to the world around you that isn't that is non-modern, pre-modern, basically. A worldview where other than humans are endowed with personhood and you are in a constant like exchange with the world around you. And in in this case it's bears. Norwegians in the eighteen hundreds very clearly related to bears as persons. Culture then is an extension of personhood. I try to almost like lure the reader into thinking in terms of other than human culture. So what we can say about bear culture, what is their culture like, basically. But also like to erase this distinction of nature and culture, like that divide between human beings and basically everything else, which is just not real, actually. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a lovely summary of an approach to, <laughs> to bear work. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I don't know how far I got into developing this concept, but it actually started as something that Rune Jane Rasmussen said, a Danish scholar from Nordic animism. I'm sure your listeners know of him. I mentioned him now and again. Yeah, (laughs) I could imagine. Or I've heard, actually. We were having some discussion on some Facebook forum, and he just wrote that term, bear culture. And something just clicked in my head, like, yeah, of course, (laughs) other than humans also have culture, like we could identify their culture. And then I suppose there's the landscape of culture that we share with them. Oh, yeah. And that seems like what a lot of the work that you're doing is. Our culture mixes with theirs and isn't created entirely by humans. Absolutely. There's a lot of overlap, obviously. I'd like to ask you a little bit about animism in your work and talking about bears as agents, because I think that's something people are curious about. And and I mention it a lot, but I don't know if we've always got an understanding of how that works in scholarship or in practice. How do you think about it? And you've mentioned to me that you're an animist yourself. So you're looking at it both from a scholarly perspective and one that you have a personal investment in to a degree. I sort of discovered animism through academia, but then it has sort of bled into me personally and how I view the world. 
or rather discovering that yeah this is obvious this makes so much sense something that you kind of felt but couldn't put to words or explicate like that how do you define animism in terms of like how does it inform your approach to bears aside from them just having a perspective what do you think about that like what is a perspective of the bear <laughs> in this process good question <laughs> I don't know any bears, so they haven't told me what their perspective is, <laughs> unfortunately. But you treat them as persons. And that doesn't mean that you can talk to them with human words or that they understand me, but that there is a baseline of existing that is as a person. In the modern world, you normally only human persons are persons. And then we view animals and all these other things in our world as separate from us and different from us. While if you apply animism to, for example, this Norwegian material about folklore, it becomes very clear that people in Norway back in the day, 150 years ago or so, didn't relate to the world as us modern people for the most part do. So all the things that seems weird to us makes a lot more sense if you just take animism into account. This way of relating to the world and sort of creating relations to all beings around you. So to me it sounds like it's less of a fixed idea of how things are. Like we're used to having sort of like a structure of humans are people and that means this and other things are like a, a very like binary rigid kind of structure. Whereas the way that you're describing animism makes me feel like there are just many more options <laughs> of ways that you could see another being or creature, that there's a lot more possibility for relationality as opposed to one fixed way. Yes. Does that make absolutely. sense? Absolutely. So I feel like in scholarship, that would create a lot more potential for interpretation and for interest like what's relevant in your sphere is that does it come out that way for you yeah sure this theoretical framework has worked for me i haven't been rejected by anyone <laughs> uh, within academia i mean these are pretty new ideas and it's pretty far out still i think and in academia, animism has a problematic past tied to colonialism and racism and all of that. It used to be used to describe, quote unquote, primitive peoples and so on. But then there is this new wave of animism, which has been dubbed new animism, which tries to redeem these concepts or use them in a fruitful way. Thank you for that. So... To change gears a little bit, there's a holiday coming up on April 14th that's celebrated in Scandinavia that's connected with bear folklore yes. that you mentioned to me before we spoke. And I'd love you to tell us and me something about that. I know everyone's really excited. <laughs> I can tell already that everyone who's okay. listening in the future <laughs> cool. is really excited to hear about this. And that's why we're talking in April. It's called Tiburtius Day, named after the Saint Tiburtius at least not today, and a, a holiday that people celebrate. 
but it has a saint ascribed to it. And it is the date that traditionally the bear is said to wake up from hibernation, from its winter sleep. And it correlates with a sort of normalized date for when the summer half of the year would start, going back to basically pre-Christian time reckoning. Uh, in pre-Christian Scandinavia, there were two halves of the year. And the summer half starts at this point. I mean, it was lunisolar, so it would fluctuate back then. But if we were to put it at a reasonable point in time in our modern calendar, it will fall on the 14th of April. And it's uh, ascribed to the St. Tiburtius. And it's diametrical opposite of the year is ascribed to a saint called Calixtus. But that's not something that people in Scandinavia know about. That doesn't seem to have been a big tradition around Calixtus, but it was would correspond roughly to winter nights, when the winter starts, and when the bear goes to sleep again. So yeah, it's not a holiday per se today, but everybody knows about this date where the bear wakes up and that's still alive at least if i would ask my neighbor what happens on 14th of april they would probably know yeah that's the day when the bear wakes up that's amazing i actually just heard yesterday that the first bear sighting near town here happened oh, so it was great. like it's yeah. quite close yeah my, <laughs> my, my time we might be on a similar uh, cool my father-in-law just yeah. sent me a picture from his little cabin up in the mountains. We're going there tomorrow. And he showed me a picture a couple of hundred meters from his house of a anthill that had been raided by a bear. <gasps> there's, yes. there's not a lot of stuff to eat when they wake up, so they eat everything. And anthills among, are among those things. That's cool. It's so I feel like in past times, people would look at really concrete symbols for, or not symbols, but signs. <laughs> That the season had changed as opposed to just looking at the calendar to tell them. Yeah, sure. And it's exactly. interesting how it's become, yeah, abstracted on a couple of levels where it's like now it's a saint's day where we don't know or care much about the saints. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and on a fixed calendar. But it's productive to be able to compare as well and notice. Absolutely. But I think it's kind of cool that the only remnant, basically, of this old pre-Christian time reckoning system is manifested in this living tradition, living knowledge about the bear's life cycle. Which is hugely important. Yeah. So it's interesting that this, I hadn't thought about the fact that bears are related with the change of seasons very much until I was reading your work, where one of the big things that is important about them is the fact that they hibernate. This is like a miraculous and incredible thing that a lot of folklore came up around. And there is this association of bears also with transformation. And I hadn't really associated that with seasonal change, but I suppose you could. I don't know if that's foundational or not. But if you will, I'd love it if you could give me an example or a story or even a ritual about how bears are connected with transformation specifically, like why and how? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, why? I don't have the definitive answer, but I think this hibernation is an important part of it. It's like they die and they come back and they die and they come back. 
And when they come back, all of the world starts living again in spring and then they die. They sort of follow that wheel of the year. So that is transformational uh, in and of itself. And then in terms of this Scandinavian folklore and bears and transformation, there's just, there's a ton to say. So (laughs) I probably (laughs) won't be able to get into all of it, but... There is this tradition that is very similar to like werewolf traditions, people being enchanted and therefore turned into bears. Or they use a piece of bear skin and they perform a ritual and they turn into a bear. And in a certain type of story that I've found in both Sweden and Norway, it is said that And in some cases, specifically bears that are malignant or like violent and attack cattle and attack humans, they are actually enchanted humans and sometimes an enchanted prince. So, and this prince who is turned into a bear magically by some antagonist or other (laughs) has to attack a pregnant woman and rip out the fetus of her belly and raise that kid as a bear. And when he has raised this kid, his own spell will be broken and he will transform back into human form. That's one of the things. I find that so intriguing because I remember in your master's thesis that you mentioned that when they skin the bear, they see that it has like a knife or a belt with a knife on it. And that's how they discover that it was this enchanted human. And I grew up in a place that had a lot of bears and like some of the highest bear populations in Canada, I suppose. And I remember when my neighbor, someone had shot a bear. This is pretty intense for anyone who's sensitive to listen to it, but they skinned it and hung it on their deck to cure, which was Mm -hmm. next to my childhood window. And looking out at this skinned bear, it looks almost exactly like a human hanging from the porch. And yeah, the the idea that a skinned bear is so resembles a human really gives life to that story and the idea that you find that under the bear skin is an actual, some kind of human, a transformed human. Exactly. Inside of the bear, there is a human. (laughs) And that works in many levels, but it also has to do with this older body-soul complex, like you have the hygge, the, the mind, kind of, and then the hammer or ham in later Scandinavian language, in modern Scandinavian language. And ham is your outer shell or your body, perhaps, in a sense. But it's not like soul and body in our sort of modern Cartesian Christian way where the two are completely separated, but they interact and they affect each other. And it's called a hum bjorn, a hum bear. It's one of these transformed humans. So they put on the outer trappings of a bear. And so they are a bear. Their body is what they become. Because they can't choose to not be a bear since they have this bear hammer. It's interesting that you pointed out because that is something that pops up again and again in the literature that 
the body of a bear is eerily similar to a human body. And in the folklore tales, it's like when they find a belt with a sheath on it and therefore realize that this is actually a human being, it's like the inner essence of a human and a bear are the same. And it's only the, the outer <laughs> shell that separates them. So what gives away this transformed human is knives and a belt, which are indicative of human culture rather than bear culture, because their bodies are so much the same. So it's a cultural difference that lets you know that this individual originally uh, belonged to human culture. <laughs> That's really cool <laughs> that it's like defined in terms of the technologies that we use. And there's something fascinating too, that as you're describing this, the interior and the exterior, I mean, there's a thousand fascinating things when you think about like performance and identity yeah. also, yeah. like what you do determines what you are exactly. on the inside to a degree, or at least effectively until maybe your death. But there's also this theme that seems to, when you describe like hibernation and like the ham, and then also talking about fetuses and this theme of the enchanted bears kidnapping or removing fetuses, there's this dynamic between the interior and the exterior and interiority being somehow really important to this relationship with bear, but also relationships in a romantic sense. If I'm yeah, getting yeah. ahead of our topic here, but... <laughs> sure. There's something about, yeah, the relationship to fertility and women mm. that has to do with that as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, if you want to talk about that right now, because it's not something we plan to discuss. It just came into my mind. No, sure. Uh, another huge topic, like the relation to women. And there are these, this type of tale that is usually called a bear son's tale. And these exist basically all over the world in the n northern areas but also like from Iberia and other places but anyway stories where a human woman uh, is abducted or for some reason ends up with a bear and has a child with this bear and then the story continues with the adventures of this bear son and this bear son is, of course, very powerful and a hero, basically. As an example, in Scandinavia, we have in Saxo Grammaticus writes about it in the 1200s. Uh, he's writing about the ancestry of all these fancy Danish nobles. And one line of ancestry within this family goes back to a Swedish family, which isn't as highborn as the rest, but <laughs> so instead he sort of ascribes that ancestry to a bear, and he tells the story about how he's describing one person, and this person's grandfather is the son of a bear in this way. She was out in the woods, uh, and she got abducted by a bear, and had a child with the bear, and then the the men came and killed the bear and saved the, the lady and the baby. He sort of grew up and had this bareness about him. He was powerful and strong and blah, blah, blah. 
So this is a like an auspicious thing to be related to a bear son. Yeah, in, 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 in Saxo, it seems like, oh, uh, <laughs> this family line doesn't have a noble background, but instead we slap this bear son theme on it because that's also a cool thing, right? <laughs> and but yeah, but the same basic story survives throughout the ages and the youngest one I've encountered is from pretty close to where I live actually and it's from 1895. It's not the same in the specifics but it's the same tale. A, a girl gets lost in the forest, ends up with a bear, spends the whole winter with him in hibernation, comes out in spring and gives birth to a baby boy that's uh, unnaturally strong and very hairy. And then <laughs> this boy is the progenitor of a family, and it's said in this account that, yeah, they're all big and strong and very hairy. I love that. There's so much that your work covers and that, that's important about the relationship between bears and human fertility. You said that there's a lot of wedding rituals that I think are still in place, or at least that, that have names of, like that refer to bears or are called the bear this or the bear that yeah can you it's, it's not alive to today that? to my knowledge but it mm. was alive up until pretty recently like a hundred years ago or so and yeah this whole thing with the northern swedish wedding rituals and its relation to bears must also be understood in relation to sami and finnish bear ceremonialism which is a long and elaborate series of rituals surrounding the bear hunt. Long story short, it starts in the autumn when you track the bear, you find it where it's going to hibernate, you mark that spot, and then you return to that spot in late winter, like February and March, somewhere in there, when the snow conditions are right. And then you wake up the bear and you kill him. And take the bear home and there's a big communal feast and skinning and cooking the bear and eating it. It's all super ritualized and accompanied by song and dance and all of that. And our sources to that are from the 1800s and 1700s mainly. But what we see then in these ethnographic accounts from Sweden from the late 1800s is a sort of version of this only it doesn't involve an actual bear, but instead you're imagining, for example, the groom as a bear, or the, the groom-to-be can be referred to as the bear. So he's courting a girl, and uh, that could be called the bear hunt, uh, when his friends, well, they play pranks on him, uh, so that's the bear hunt. And there's a whole sort of lingo connected to courtship, engagement, uh, announcing the bands, and then getting married. And there's this bare discourse present in all of these ritual phases, which is interesting. And a lot of the terminology sort of reflects this Finnish and or Sami bear ceremonialism in very interesting ways. And, for example, in, in Dalarna, a region of Sweden, both the groom and the bride were called the bears. So when they've 
announced that they're a couple, they're getting engaged. Uh, you have the bear feast, just like in bear ceremonialism. The bear feast is the feast when you eat the bear. <laughs> That's the bear feast, and it takes several days, and it's connected to a bunch of rituals and singing and, and all that. Well, they get engaged, and they are the bears. They are referred to as the bears, and then they are the bears until they are married. And then they are no longer the bears. So there's this ritual liminal space in their lives when they go from being unmarried young individuals into becoming a legitimate couple. And the implication is, of course, that this couple has children and that humanity continues. They produce offspring and life goes on. And in this sort of in-between space of time from the engagement to the wedding, they are for some reason referred to as bears and are ritualized as bears. So, for example, the first time after the engagement that the bride can follow the groom to his house, their friends and family put a like a little twig or log against the door of that house trapping them in the house and then they call call the house uh, the bear's den like they go into hibernation together in their new home there's a bunch of examples like this um, but for some reason there's this bear terminology related to engagement and wedding and courtship that's so fascinating it makes sense that one of the most important feasts and celebrations I suppose, in Sami and Finnish culture would be somehow compared or related to another important... Like, I don't know, I'm curious about how these relate. And I know that you're reserving your analysis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the simple answer is I don't know. Um, and it's, it's, it fascinates me. It's, it's why I do this. <laughs> but I don't have a good... Like, there's no logic, uh, logical, simple explanation to why this bear ceremonialism has sort of seeped into Swedish marriage rituals. But they're sort of loosely connected, intuitively connected. It has something to do with maybe totemic ancestry, because in some of the Sami tales, they're, you know, they refer to the bear as their ancestor. And, well... A marriage is supposed to end with kids. Like, that's the ultimate goal, right? The continuation of mankind, in a, in a sense. And so, celebrating, having a big feast for this beloved ancestor that you have killed, <laughs> which is paradoxical, but the bear feast is in honor of the bear. So the, the party they're having is for the bear. And they take the remains of the bear, which is the bones, and they prepare them in ritually in a certain way so that the bear can return to where it came from, which is some celestial sphere. In the Finnish tradition, the, the bear was, in some stories at least, there are many different, but in some stories the bear is the son of a sky god. And he looks down on earth and he sees the humans and he 
tells his father that I want to go down. <laughs> I want to go down there and be with them. <laughs> and so he's lowered down in a golden cradle with silver chains on it. And he walks the earth with the humans. Like he has this desire to be with the humans. In the Finnish bear ceremonialism, the bear feast is some, sometimes called the wedding of our ancestor. So it's a, in one sense, it's a wake for the bear. It's like a funeral for the bear and a feast for the bear, but also a wedding. And so they would have like a mock wedding and appoint a girl or a boy, depending on the gender of the bear, that would play the bride or groom to this beloved ancestor that we are now remarrying with. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many layers that are like really incredible to that. And I think it's neat to think about people going into, and I know this isn't the entirety of the bear associations with weddings and in, in, you were talking about in, it's in Dalarna. Dalarna. Dalarna, yes, yeah. There's this idea that they're going through a transition, but they're also, bears are pretty compared to humans, they're quite fertile. They have litters and they, they have litters when they're in hibernation, don't they, inside their den? So it makes sense, like at least that one example that you gave to think about people going together into this liminal zone and coming out more fertile <laughs> in some way, coming out with the offspring, if that's the goal. The bear has some sort of fertility power, like... In some stories, when a woman is in labor and she's in a lot of pain, from Norway, they tell that she should stroke her belly with a bear's paw, like with an actual bear's paw, like someone killed the bear and preserved the paw, and they stroke her belly with the paw and it will ease the pain. In another version of the same sort of theme, a story told here in a woman in labor should have a man as a midwife, a man that is a bear hunter and that has been bitten by a bear. So <laughs> a victim of a bear attack should be by her side when she's giving birth because that will help. Or that she should hug, embrace a skinned bear, the, like the carcass of a bear. That's very weird. And like, would they have a carcass of a bear sitting around? I don't know. <laughs> Special cases, I guess. Yeah. You have to be royalty or something. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> As you're telling me these examples, there's something about them that really, I, and I don't know why it's on like an unconscious level, but really does resonate. I have, I think unconsciously for some time, and this could be cultural, I'm not sure, but associated bears with femininity and with fertility and I'm not sure why. <laughs> but it's like, I'm like, oh, of course. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a mystery to me too, but I can't stay away from it. It's kind of weird. Like I say, there, there's not this any obvious answers that comes to you when you read the material or when you get into this. But it, it's complex and it's kind of intuitive, like I said. Uh, another thing that connects to the life-giving powers of human women are that in the Sami, in the South Sami language from 250 years ago, there is this word called lebe or lepie, and it refers to menstrual blood. But 
it also refers to the blood of the bear. But only that wow. kind of blood, no other type of blood, but only bear blood. So menstrual blood is bear blood. Wild. Yeah, I was, that's wild. I was, um, <laughs> <laughs> when I grew up in the north here in Canada, we were told uh, over and over again, usually by men, but <laughs> over and over again, that women who are menstruating shouldn't go in the yeah. forest because the bears will come attack mm -hmm. you because they smell the menstrual blood. And it was disproven. I think someone finally studied it scientifically and found that bears are not interested in menstrual blood yeah. particularly. But that was... The, I didn't realize at the time that that was folklore, you know, that there was something that might go back to a, an older idea. Definitely connected notion. to the whole fetus stealing thing, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, def like we were told that they would come and, you know, eat us, vagina first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that too, but that seems to be mainly in North America and but I also, I think I stumbled across those studies where they did these experiments. And, and they, they, the conclusion was that, no, there's no relation. They had like normal blood and menstrual blood in different areas out in the landscape. And to see if the bears came up to them were especially interested in menstrual blood, but it wouldn't seem so. No. It was, I never actually pictured what those studies would have looked like. Like, a, <laughs> it's a really interesting thing that they even took it up as they a, had tampons. As a topic. So you, you, yeah, you have looked into yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about it and I, and I stumbled across the fact that people had actually studied it in the modern, you know, scientific kind of way, but yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Well, I wanted to ask you on a totally different note we were talking about lineage and about people embodying bear qualities and i know it's a really common practice in scandinavia to name people bjorn mm -hmm. which is yeah. bear why do you think maybe it's obvious but why do people name people bear i don't know specifically but people are named a lot of different things I don't think that the, actually that the name Bjorn is specifically tied to all of this that we have been talking about, for example. From what I've read, the people that do research on names and place names and personal names, uh, they say that names aren't significant in that way. The meaning of the name doesn't have to necessarily connect to that person, you know, it's just a name, quote unquote, sometimes. But what we can say is that it seems to be pretty old. The habit of naming people Bjorn, Bear, is old. So, but I haven't really looked into it to any significant extent. What do you know about the history of the names for Bear? I've heard that Bear just means brown or that there's, there is some taboo around saying the bear's name specifically. Is that in Scandinavia an issue or, a, or something that you mm. thought about? Yeah, I, I've heard this same thing, but I haven't gotten to the core of it really. But I, I've understood that it's sort of a contested question, like does bear just mean brown? And if it means just brown, then that means that there was an original name that was sort of fell out of use and this 
brown name took over its, its role as a main name for this animal because of avoidance. You shouldn't mention this creature's name, its true name, because you will attract it. So, and that's dangerous, of course. So you think of other names for it. Sort of, you know, speak of the devil. So I don't know what to think about that. I truly don't know. But what I do know is that there are other avoidance names or so-called Noah names in Scandinavia. And in the Finnish tradition, there are hundreds of these, you know, hundreds of names for the bear, literally several hundreds. And in, in Sweden, there, there are names like golden foot or uh, broad foot or broad skull or grandpa. And in the Sami culture, it's the same or like the old man on the mountain or the forest grandfather and stuff like that. That's really cool. I like how you highlighted that the idea that we call bears just brown, quote unquote, is because of taboo might not necessarily be, and maybe you weren't intentionally pointing at that, but I'm curious about maybe, because we do sometimes have a tendency to interpret the past through a religious lens when it might be just that we really like nicknames and they're a term of endearment. <laughs> yeah. Or something that might be more interesting and compelling. Yeah. Poetically to refer to the bear as opposed to by avoidance. Like, I'm not sure if we have proof of that. Or something or some concept that, that is culturally significant naturally gets a lot of different names. Right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be, a, it doesn't have to be negative necessarily or, no. or avoidant. It could just be an abundance of interest. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and different words used in different areas within a larger language area. But the, the sort of proto-Indo-European root word, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's the word that led up to Arthur in English that has that root and Arctos in, is it Latin or Greek? Sorry, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Maybe Greek? Sounds like a Greek yeah. word. <laughs> Arctos. There is this older pie root that is nothing like the Northern Germanic words that came after it, like Bjorn and Bear. But I don't, I don't know the specifics of it, actually. Well, I want to ask you, finally, about this notion of Kronsa that you yeah. <laughs> mentioned in your work. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that you can be dumbstruck or confused because you've interacted with a bear in the wrong way. There were a bunch of different ways you could do this, but I was especially curious about this because when I saw bears as a child, which I often did, but it always felt like there was some sort of supernatural or surreal or like feeling or like being outside of time, like taking a drug or something. And, I, and it really struck me that that sensation it may or may not be related, but I'm curious about that. What is Kulmsar? Can you give yeah, me an example of that? That's so interesting that you say that, that you find that there is this sort of supernatural quality in the mere interaction with a bear. You see a bear and something happens. That's so cool. Me, personally, I've never uh, seen a bear in the wild. Ah. 
never. And I, they're, they're all around me, like <laughs> literally all around me. Uh, but I've never seen one. Well, this klumsa thing, it's like if a bear sees you before you see it in the forest, you will become klumset. You will become like spellbound or dumbstruck or just lose your wits, lose your sense. You can't move or you can't, you can't speak or something like that. You get confused. You're just, yeah, out of it, basically. So if the bear is aware of you before you are aware of it, this happens to you. And then there are certain things you can do to avoid this. Well, one rule in one account I read was that you can't whistle. You shouldn't whistle or make sounds or you shouldn't spit on the ground. And there are these things you have to observe in order to not be spellbound by the bear. But the bear can also be clumset by humans, which is interesting because that it's a mutual thing. The bear can also be spellbound when coming into contact with a human. If, it, if you surprise it, then if it's not made aware of you and you approach it, it might be spellbound in the same way. It seems to imply that there's manners or what's the word for etiquette? Yeah, there's etiquette. <laughs> but there's etiquette between humans and bears and that the relationship is managed through that etiquette. Definitely, yes. There are certain ways you should address the bear so that it will be peaceful and respectful to you. So when you call the bear uh, grandfather, for example, that pleases the bear and it won't hurt you. So if you come across a bear and you just say, excuse me, grandpa, didn't mean to disturb you. You just go on your way and I'll go on my way. Then that happens. But if you call it basse, which is a word that it's sort of derogatory. It's hard to explain, but it, it has connotations to aggression or the bear being a sort of brutish person. And if you do that, the, the bear will become angry with you. The word itself sounds a bit more aggressive, like bust, bust it. It, like it's yeah. kind of a explosive <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know linguistics, but <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. I love that. And it seems, I mean, it's a way of passing down a sense of re mutual responsibility and care. And again, yeah, mutual respect. Perspective. Yeah. In one of these kidnapping stories, when a bear has stolen not a fetus, uh, but but a a small child, the villagers sort of hunt down the bear, uh, and in this example, they talk to the bear and they have like dialogue, and so they they try to make him give back this baby. It's our it's our kid. Give it back, and he refuses. Like no, <laughs> it's my kid now. And they, they beg him and they try to make him return the child. And finally, they, they say, well, if you give this child back, we will name him after you. We will name him Bear something or other. I don't know, a bear-related name. Right. And then he agrees. Like, when you acknowledge our kinship and agree to let this kid have my name and let that name go on through the generations, then okay, you can have the, you can have the kid back. 
And so they get the kid back, and this kid grows up to be the patriarch of a great family, as it says in that in that story. So it's almost like acknowledging our mutual kinship is what allows the human kinship like bond to continue as well. It's that like humans can't continue. I mean, this is I'm way extrapolating here. Yeah, but go right ahead. The symbolism <laughs> I'd like to read right now, at mm-hmm. least, sure. is to think that like we can continue to have children and family coherency or, or like coherency of human relations if we continually acknowledge our relationship to the bear yeah pay respects to that our, feels, that to feels our true. earth sign ancestor and things will be fine mm-hmm. that's beautiful so this is a really broad, broad question that i want to end with you've been speaking a lot about folklore from the 19th century because that's what we have records of but how far back do you think this bear folklore goes like is there any idea of the age of many of these stories that you mentioned here i don't know but for example this bear sun story it can be observed in well all of the circumpolar area so from the east coast of canada all over north north america in japan and all the way across the eurasian landmass there are versions of, of this bear sun tale. Wow. Uh, so then the question is, <laughs> is it genetically connected to each other or is it, how has it spread? But it would certainly suggest that it's like really, really old. And these Finno-Ugric traditions that I have studied in the form of the Sami and the Finnish traditions, they have analogs in all Ugric-speaking populations, and their common ancestry is very old as well. I don't know specifically, but 6,000 years ago or something like that. That's impressive. And because they're geographically distant, Very right? far apart, yeah. Like deep, deep Siberia and then all the way out to Norway, basically. Well, that's amazing. I feel really honored that you were able to share <laughs> okay. all of this with me. And I think people will be really, really happy to hear it. It's information that it has been kind of hidden, I feel like, from the popular gaze for a long time. Do you have that impression? Yeah, the Swedish and Norwegian material I've been looking at, it's, not, it's very hard to find information on it. You know, like previous research that's limited to basically one book and four or five or six articles. Wow. I'm sure there is stuff that I don't know about, but it's under research for sure. While, you know, the, well, the Finnish and the Sami stuff. Oh, sorry. It's encouraging for anyone who's interested in it. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To think that there's a lot of room to keep looking. <laughs> yeah, sure. And you're saying the Finnish and Sami stuff. Yeah, yeah. Those materials are much more well-researched this whole bear ceremonialism thing but and has been researched for yeah well basically for 300 years but in the more modern tradition in academia people have looked at this and i can't help but think that they must have stumbled across the same things that i have in the swedish and norwegian materials because they're so adjacent in time and, and space but for some reason it's been ignored and possibly has to do with 
nationalism and this bare ooga booga doesn't really fit into what Swedes and Norwegians are supposed to be like. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. That makes sense because it is becoming more popular to look into different things now, more animistic and pagan and indigenous ways of seeing the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, which is fantastic. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me and for sharing your research. I've, I'm full of inspiration yeah. now. Like I have, I have so many <laughs> avenues I want to follow. <laughs> and I really appreciate it also because a lot of the people who listen to my podcast don't speak a Scandinavian language and couldn't do this primary research themselves. And it's, it can be really hard to access folklore in North America or in English. So really appreciate that as well. And I want to thank you on all of our behalf. <laughs> and I want to know if people want to read your work or find you, how can they find you on the internet well, these days? Yeah, you can just Google my name or you can look me up on Facebook. If you want to ask me anything, just go ahead and write me. That's okay. And uh, my master's thesis is on um, academia.net, is it called that? Edu. Uh, edu. Yeah, edu. That's right. That's it. I'm not very. <laughs> I'm not very That's active okay. on there. I don't. I don't care. But it's available to download, and it's in English. And I want to say a big thank you for having me. Obviously, I love your podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, and it was so wonderful to meet you face to face. And I hope that you get to continue doing this kind of research because it's extremely valuable and very enjoyable to learn about for everyone else as well. Like, I appreciate writing in English as well. It's a big deal. Thank you. <laughs> for the rest of us. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode today. I'll put the link to Ola's academia.edu page in the show notes, and I'll leave you with a traditional Norwegian song that's accompanied by a dance where a circle of men perform in the posture of bears, or you could say they perform as bears. And you can hear, faintly, the beat to the song that's created by their feet hitting the ground in this dance that's performed on all fours. It's from a Norwegian documentary from 1969, and I'll put that link in the show notes so you can watch the video as well and see what I'm talking about. The song is about bear hunting, and the lyrics are as follows. On the east side of the East Mountain, Grandpa shot a bear. They skinned it and they carried it home, and then they cooked and ate the bear. Afterwards, they danced like this. If you enjoy Fair Folk, please hit the subscribe button and consider sharing an episode that you really liked with someone else who you think would also like it. Thank you so much again to Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the intro theme to Fair Folk. Happy April, take good care, and I'll talk to you soon. Der rustat på Østerfjellet, og der tråd i tråd ei. Der rustat på Østerfjellet, og der tråd i tråd ei. Der skjorten gammel bæsfar, en bjørn tråd i tråd ei. Der skjorten gammel bæsfar, en bjørn tråd i tråd ei. Tralalalalala, tralalalalala. Dem flodne barn hemmat og så var det bjørn sånn. Dem flodne barn hemmat og så var det bjørn sånn. 
O etter posa dansen dem så trai tralei O etter posa dansen dem så trai tralei Åh!